This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks, and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural, and always free from sweeteners, fillers, and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T dot com. Use the code FABULOUSLY10, that's one zero, to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases. Not valid on subscribe and save. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 158 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. Now, if you listen to this podcast on Stitcher, Stitcher will soon be closing and you will need to find an alternative way to listen. So you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean or any other RSS feed podcast app. So if you're listening on Stitcher, please do find an alternative before you lose all your podcasts and things that you listen to so go in and find the ones that you like to listen to and subscribe to those today i'm interviewing dr helena popovic who was a previous guest on episode 147 helena approached me to come on the podcast and i'm so glad she did we had so much to talk about both on and off the air in both episodes um so let me tell you about helena Dr. Helena Popovic is a medical doctor, best-selling author and international speaker who shows people how to boost their brain at any age or stage of life so that they can, one, perform at their peak throughout their career, two, eliminate brain fog in menopause, three, avoid Alzheimer's and other dementias in retirement. She also provides a roadmap for living longer, stronger, healthier and happier. Dr. Helena graduated from the University of Sydney and has spent over 30 years researching the brain and teaching people how to reach their full potential. Discovering how to boost our brain is the single most important investment we can make to achieve our goals, solve complex problems and create a fulfilling life. Dr. Helena's philosophy is that education is more powerful than medication and she believes in growing bolder rather than older. Let's go and hear from Dr. Helena. Welcome back, Helena, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us again. It's fabulous to be talking to you again. 
And I know we're not going to go over everything, you know, your journey and everything we did in the last one, but I am going to ask you, because I ask every guest every time, where in the world are you? I am still where I was last I'm at Gold Coast, even though it's winter, and that's why I love living here. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Australia. I, I presume people know that the Gold Coast is in the state of Queensland in Australia. Yeah. So I quite like it when you have your winter because we have our summer. <laughs> yes. We've been, I've invited you back today because I know um, you've got a book on Alzheimer's. You know a lot about Alzheimer's. So this episode is really going to focus on Alzheimer's. And if people want to find out about your journey and how you got into low carb, they can go back to the previous episode that we did. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about why we're talking about dementia and Alzheimer's on today's podcast? Because in many cases, dementia and especially Alzheimer's results from a compromise in brain energy. In other words, our brain cells are not getting enough fuel in the form of glucose to function properly. And research is emerging that a whole food ketogenic lifestyle may be able to prevent dementia from happening and even improve brain function in those already diagnosed with the disease. And I looked after my father for more than 10 years who had Alzheimer's. And yes, it's only a case study of one, but since then I have also dealt with many, many other people with this disease. And we can definitely make great improvements to brain function before and after a diagnosis. Yeah, fabulous. And, you know, I'm sorry that your dad had to go through that. Did did you know enough at the time to be able to help him or did that come, you know, did you find out more when it was a bit too late not when it was luckily well at the beginning when he was first diagnosed I didn't know anything I was told look sorry make sure he gets his affairs in order there's nothing we can do the best thing you can probably do is put him in a nursing home that's what they call them then aged care residence because nothing there's nothing you can do to help and I just didn't accept that so I did a really deep dive into all things brain health and I found out that nothing could be further from the truth that I, I'm just flabbergasted at how little most doctors still know about dementia and just have no resources at their fingertips and don't know how to make a difference to people. And it's a tragedy because there is so much we can do. Mm, yeah. So is there a difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? And if so, what's the difference? What's the definition of it? Okay, definitely there is a, there is a difference. Dementia is a really broad umbrella term for more than a hundred different diseases, all of which lead to progressive decline in brain function, and it has to interfere with daily life. That's how you define dementia. So your symptoms are going to include things like memory loss, confusion, apathy, difficulty concentrating. They'll start having problems with speaking or understanding speech. They repeat themselves in conversation. They start to have sensory deficits, so they don't see. They, it's not that they their vision is a little bit different. They even have personality changes. So the word dementia, if you like, is analogous to the word cancer. There are many subtypes, subtypes with different symptoms. And it is actually the most feared of all diseases because if you lose your mental faculties, you lose yourself. Mm. Alzheimer's, on the other hand, is 
the most common type of dementia. It accounts for about 60 to 70% of cases worldwide. And that's why that's the one you hear most about. And that's usually the classic memory loss and apathy picture when it first begins. And an even bigger umbrella term, just for completeness, is neurodegenerative diseases. And that includes dementia and things like Parkinson's, MS, motor neuron disease. So Alzheimer's is a type of dementia and dementia is a type of neurodegenerative disease. And all of these conditions are influenced to a greater or lesser degree by what we eat and how we live. And the first thing I want to say here is this is not about blaming people for their disease because we simply didn't know until quite recently just how much our lifestyles, our food choices, you know, physical exercise, all of these impact our brain quite dramatically. And now that we do know, I think we have to empower people to do everything they can to to, to defy dementia and avoid Alzheimer's. Yeah. And this is my understanding and it, and it's a very lay person's understanding as I'm not a doctor like you but my understanding is by the time people notice that they have a cognitive dysfunction they've already lost a significant amount of brain cells or they've got brain damage in some way so the more we can do beforehand probably the better it is rather than waiting for symptoms to arise absolutely right like we used to think that Alzheimer's was just a disease of old age. Now that we have, you're absolutely correct, now that we have functional MRI and PET scans, we can see that brain changes leading to Alzheimer's start 20 to 30 years before we get any symptoms. So you're right, it's never too early to start living in a way that optimises brain health. And like, I mean, that that will inevitably improve our quality of life in the here and now. It improves our thinking, our creativity, our memory, our job performance. So why wouldn't you want to do things to keep your brain working at its best right now? And the bonus is, you know, you'll avoid Alzheimer's and dementia or other dementias later in life. Having said that, I also want to make sure people realise it's never too late to make dietary and lifestyle changes that will at least lead to some improvement. It's just the longer you leave it, the harder it gets because, yes, you're right, the more damage that your brain has sustained. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we know that nowadays Alzheimer's is not – a. so we tend to think, and again, layperson's interpretation, we tend to think as dementia is more uh, something that a person gets when they're older, but we – Alzheimer's can affect people when they're younger. And maybe it's just dementia affecting people when they're younger as well, but – I don't know about if it's true, but it seems that we're seeing it more now with younger and younger people. Yes, that's that's true. Look, there's different schools of thought. Um, some, Some reports say that we're seeing less dementia later in life because the population as a whole is better educated and higher education is a protective factor because we've got to use it or lose it brain. The better educated you are, the more you learn, the more challenges you know, the more mentally stimulating work you have, you know, the less likely you are to get dementia. Um, But yes, we are seeing it throughout the life course. Obviously, it's nowhere near as common under the age of 65 as it is over the age of 70. In fact, every three seconds, someone somewhere in the world is being diagnosed with dementia. And this is a disease that tends to be underdiagnosed. So the numbers are probably much higher. Um, And if if I look at the World Health Organization stats, as of March this year, that's 2023, more than 55 million people 
in the world have dementia and every year they're saying that there are nearly 10 million new cases. As far as its impact, globally dementia is the seventh most common cause of death. Mm. But you'll be shocked to hear this. In Australia and the UK, dementia is the number one cause of death in women. It kills more women than breast cancer, heart disease, any other disease you care to mention. And we can we can discuss why later. But wow. even worse, yeah, yeah, that people think, no, you're kidding. People, most people don't know that, that it kills but, so more women just, than anything else. I'm just going to reiterate that. So it's the seventh killer in the world and it kills more than most women. It's the biggest killer of women and every three seconds somebody is diagnosed with dementia. Yes, every three seconds someone in the world is diagnosed. It is the seventh most common cause of death worldwide. In Australia and UK and the UK, yes. it's the number one cause of death in women. In other countries, it's right up there in the top five. But in our two countries, for whatever reason, I have yet to figure out, it is the number one cause of death. Maybe because we're good at treating the other stuff better than we're I think it's more a case that we're really good at treating heart disease and breast cancer, quite frankly. Yeah. We're not so good at treating dementia. That's probably why it's one of the bigger bigger killers. And maybe also diagnose, maybe we're better at diagnosing it, maybe? Yes, that too. We're definitely getting better at diagnosing it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here, I'll tell you another real tragedy, because most people are still erroneously told at the time of diagnosis, sorry, there's nothing we can do, so get your affairs in order. This was a US study. They found a 44% increased risk of attempted suicide in the two years following a, a diagnosis and a 73% increased risk in suicide attempts when someone is told they have a condition called MCI, that's mild cognitive impairment, which is often but not always a forerunner to developing Alzheimer's or another dementia. That is how much people fear that disease. So the medical profession has to change the culture of diagnose and adios because there's stuff we can do now. The problem is what we can do to help dementia patients doesn't come in the form of a pill. There's the stumbling block. Yeah, that is so sad. It's really... I, I I sort of had a cold shiver run down me that yeah. people are committing suicide because of their diagnosis. Giving up their, you know, they're giving up hope before they even attempt to improve their quality of life. And and it can. It really can. So how common is it? How common is Alzheimer's? Uh roughly one in a hundred. 60 to 64 year olds has Alzheimer's and then every five years until the age of 85 the number tends to double Mm. so that would be one in 50 65 year olds one in 25 70 year olds and then it goes up to one in three 85 year olds so it's extraordinarily common especially if you live long enough yeah I'm just Mm. I'm just I'm just absorbing all that because it's it's scary. It is scary. Did, did you think, uh, well, how much do our genes influence the risk of Alzheimer's? Like, would it tend to go through families? I know that, you know, if you have the gene, you um, you have the potential to develop a disease. 
but how you live your lifestyle and how that gene expresses itself is different in different people. Yes. But how much does gene, do genes influence it? With respect to Alzheimer's, there are two, actually two categories of genes. One category is referred to as deterministic. And that means if you inherit that gene, you are at this stage, as in this stage of human history, guaranteed to get Alzheimer's, but you can nonetheless delay the onset and slow progression through brain healthy choices. And we know of three genes in this category. They're called anyone who's you know, got a parent with it will, will have heard of them. They're called presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and amyloid precursor protein, app. If either of your parents carries one of these genes, there's a 50% chance that the affected parent will pass the gene to you. Fortunately, these genes are very rare and they account for less than, uh, depending on, again, what stats you read, 1% to 5% of Alzheimer's cases worldwide. So luckily, it's really not very common to have that deterministic gene. The second category of genes is referred to as risk factor genes. Now, if you inherit a risk factor gene, you're more prone to getting Alzheimer's than someone without the gene. But as you said, you are by no means destined for the disease. And the best known Alzheimer's risk factor gene is called APOE4. If you inherit one copy of this gene from a parent, you have, again, two to four-fold higher risk of Alzheimer's, so double your risk, maybe four times the risk. If you inherit two copies, which is also very rare, you're eight to ten times more likely to get Alzheimer's than someone without the genes. I don't know if you remember in November last year, November 2022, Chris Hemsworth, he announced that he was taking a break from acting to reassess his personal priorities after discovering that he had two copies of the APOE4 gene. So, yeah, that, that was a huge shock to him. But I think he is, he's got the best doctors in the world, seriously, and I don't think he'll get it. I just think he's going to be hell-bent on doing everything he can not to. Um, and the other thing too, ethnicity plays a significant role in even how that APOE4 gene affects brain health. Like, for instance, people who are Nigerian, Hispanic, Latino, they're much less likely to develop Alzheimer's than the APOE4 carriers of Caucasian or Japanese de descent. So, you know, I keep reminding people a single gene never tells the whole story. And a person's risk of Alzheimer's is very much influenced by the other genes they've inherited along with the APOE4. Because many people with APOE4 gene never develop Alzheimer's because somewhere in their DNA, they also carry protective genes or they lead a healthy lifestyle. And we know that there are many, many genes influencing Alzheimer's. We just haven't identified them all and we don't know what they all do. So as you said, the critical message is our genes do not determine our destiny. Mm. And I just keep telling people our decisions are more powerful than our DNA. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah just just as an aside, just, just to see, to show you how lifestyle influences genes, if um, an APOE4 carrier has an optimistic view of ageing and they do regular physical exercise, they bring their risk down to what the average person without the gene has. Just those two things, having a positive attitude towards ageing and daily physical exercise. Meanwhile... 
someone with type 2 diabetes with the gene, their Alzheimer's risk just skyrockets. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's worth people getting tested for the for the genes? I'm, I'm in... I'm in two minds about gene testing, so um, it'd be interesting to hear what you think. I wouldn't do a generic, you know, tell me all about all my genes. I personally did have the APOE test because my father had it, his mother had it. So I thought, I want to know. I want to know whether I have the increased risk. And But but the first thing you, you need to ask yourself, so I think it's a very individual decision, but ask yourself before you have the test, what would you do differently if you discovered that you had a risk factor gene? Are you prepared to make big changes in your life if necessary? My answer was absolutely yes. Um, so, so with respect to Alzheimer's, if you had that gene, categorically, if you wanted to improve your odds, you'd have to give up cigarettes, alcohol, because APOE4 carriers can't tolerate alcohol in terms you know, they, they can drink it, sure, but their brain can't tolerate it and they won't realise. You'd have to give up sugar, soft drinks, a toxic relationship, highly stressful job. You might even need to move because air pollution significantly increases risk, especially if you have that gene. So I had to ask myself, would I be prepared to make these big changes? Now, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't have sugar and I don't drink soft drinks. So I was pretty lucky in that that regard. Um, so I wouldn't have to change much, but, but that's what you have to ask yourself. Would you be prepared to make these changes? So I recommend that people get genetic counseling if you consider getting tested so that you really think through the implications. I mean, another person might go, you know what? I don't want to change my life, but because I know that I'm on the path, I'm just going to quit this awful job and travel the world and spend my money and enjoy life now. And that's a valid choice. Yeah, but it's a it's a choice. So that you're making yes. a decision about and it it's now. Our choice. Yes, yeah. yes. You're making a decision about it now while you still have um, the co- cognitive capacity to do so. Um, yes. You know, I always tell my listeners will know that my husband has diabetes, and his choice is not to make any changes. And he smokes, mm-hmm. and he's been on blood pressure medication since his thirties. And he does not want to change. Um, and so what What can anyone do about that? Nothing. That's his choice. And, you That's know, right. he's going to end up somewhere down the line, who knows where. And But he's making that choice. And I'm not sure that it's an informed choice, but it is a choice. Yeah. Well, yeah. I like to give people all the information they want to make the best possible decision for themselves. And we all have different values and priorities. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so this is eating crappy foods and smoking and things like that. There you go. <laughs> so is it purely genetic or is there something else that causes Alzheimer's? Oh, <laughs> this is where things get really complex and it's hotly debated. But here is, from my reading of all the research, this is, and and I'm not alone in this, so many scientists around the world now, this is what the conclusion Ever since the German psychiatrist Alois Alzheimer, mm. that's after whom the disease was named, he first identified strange protein deposits in the brain of a patient in 1906, so more than a century ago. So ever since he discovered these aberrant proteins called amyloid beta plaques, 
and tau, tong- tau tangles, doctors have believed that these proteins cause Alzheimer's. However, billions of dollars, and I do mean billions, have been spent on hundreds of trials of drugs that remove amyloid but don't cure the disease. So getting rid of amyloid isn't the answer. And amyloid is not the root cause, even though a lot of doctors still hang on to this outdated idea. It's probably like cholesterol isn't the cause of heart disease. It's a protective mechanism trying to keep you alive. And I suspect the amyloid plaques are doing exactly that, trying to protect you. Spot on. I I talk about it like amyloid and tau can be signs of the disease, just like, you know, a scab on your skin is a sign of having sustained a cut. But the scab is not the cause of the cut. And fortunately today, with the invention of PET scans, we can now see that the fundamental problem in Alzheimer's is that brain cells, which you'll know are called neurons, are not getting enough energy to function properly. And this is known as brain glucose hypometabolism. And what seems to be driving this hypometabolism is largely, maybe not exclusively, but largely damage to organelles called mitochondria. And your listeners will probably be aware that mitochondria are known as the sites of energy production in all our cells, except red blood cells. And mitochondria make energy by converting glucose from the food we eat to a chemical called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And ATP is what provides us with energy to do everything, breathe, talk, move, think, digest our food. And the conversion of glucose to ATP in mitochondria requires oxygen. So firstly, anything that compromises oxygen to the brain will compromise energy production. So that's why high blood pressure, atherosclerosis, the buildup of plaque in our arteries, or at worst, a stroke significantly increases the risk of Alzheimer's because these conditions all reduce oxygen delivery to the brain. And that's also why snoring, obstructive sleep apnea, where a person stops breathing hundreds of times a night, that's also a big risk factor for Alzheimer's. But there are also other things that damage mitochondria, 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 or contribute in other ways to developing Alzheimer's. And they include, you'll be familiar with all these terms, insulin resistance. So type 2 diabetes doubles the risk of Alzheimer's. Inflammation, hence abdominal obesity, gum disease, arthritis. They make a person more likely to get Alzheimer's. Insufficient nutrients to the brain like omega-3 fatty acids uh, and particularly vitamins D and B12. Infections can contribute, particularly HIV, but even things like herpes viruses or chronic severe mold exposure and toxins, heavy metals and sugar. Sugar is toxic to the brain. And all these factors end up damaging brain cells and impairing communication between brain cells, which then drives the buildup of the proteins, amyloid and tau I mentioned earlier. And I can see you you starting to connect the dots because a ketogenic diet reverses insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes because a ketogenic diet reduces inflammation and removes sugar from our diet. It follows that a ketogenic diet could go a long way to preventing and even reversing Alzheimer's. So I hope that that, I know, can you see it's a really complicated answer as to what causes Alzheimer's because it's not one thing, it's all these factors working together. Yeah, 
I agree. Yeah. Um, so I know you said that in the UK and Australia, it's the biggest um, cause of death for women. Is is it more is Alzheimer's more common in women than men or is it fairly evenly spread or the other no. way? Two thirds of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's are women. Two thirds. Two thirds. So it's twice as common in women. Um, interesting aside, two-thirds of people caring for someone with Alzheimer's are also women. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So what do you think is behind that? Um, so is there something in, in – is it something to do with menopause? Is it is it the way we live? What? Why is it different? Do you know? I mean, maybe you don't know. We are, look, there are some – I will tell you the, the current hypotheses, which I think are quite plausible. It does, as you say, it does appear to be linked to the abrupt fall in estradiol levels, which is a type of estrogen hormone, at menopause. Men do not have an abrupt drop in testosterone. It does decline very gradually with age. But with women, it's like quite an abrupt drop in estradiol levels. And estradiol has multiple effects in many different regions of the brain. For a start, estradiol facilitates glucose metabolism and mitochondrial mitochondrial function to ensure the brain has adequate energy. And remember what I said, Alzheimer's is inadequate energy to the brain. So when estradiol levels plummet, the brain has to use ketone bodies instead of glucose for fuel. And there's a subset of brain cells called astrocytes that make ketone bodies from fatty acids delivered to the brain via our blood. However, if the brain can't get enough fatty acids from circulation, it starts to break down the coating around brain cell fibers called myelin because it's a source of fat. And loss of myelin then leads to loss of signaling between brain cells. So in a way, menopause can trigger the brain starting to feed on itself because it doesn't have enough energy. And some researchers have even suggested that the symptoms of menopause, like the hot flushes especially, they're kind of a signal of the brain transitioning to using ketone bodies. And when the symptoms fade, it indicates that the brain has adjusted to its use of ketones. It's all speculative, but I think it's actually quite plausible um, because estradiol also facilitates the production of antioxidants, neuronal growth factors, and the clearance of brain toxins. So when estradiol declines, so do these protective factors. Now, obviously not all women get Alzheimer's, so that's not the only thing, but what appears to be the case is the healthier and the more metabolically flexible, i.e. able to use fat for fuel that a woman is before menopause, the less her brain will be negatively impacted after menopause. Oh, one more really crucial thing for women to know is that having a hysterectomy, that's removing your uterus, or oophorectomy, that's removing one or both ovaries, before menopause, it can disrupt estradiol production by the ovaries and also significantly increase the risk of Alzheimer's. And the younger a woman is when she has surgery, the worse her long-term brain health is likely to be. So in women who have their ovaries or uterus out before menopause, I strongly, strongly recommend that they discuss taking hormone replacement therapy or menopausal hormone therapy, different countries call it different things, you strongly discuss taking that replacement therapy. 
because women who have their uterus or ovaries out and take hormone replacement therapy do not increase their risk of Alzheimer's. Now, there are certain women who can't take them, but I think this is a really strong case for taking them. Helena, you are the first person on the Fabulously Keto podcast to make me cry because I had one and a half ovaries out when I was 18. Oh, my gosh. And um, and I went through all the hormonal stuff, but I only learned about it six years ago that it's that it affects people. And, yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, and, and I didn't know. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Wow. But I guess I'm doing the best thing I can now. You're doing absolutely the best thing you can now. Absolutely. And they did leave some of your ovary. Half, yeah. Half. But yeah. as I said, like, you know, you are now doing everything you possibly can. You, you can't be doing better than, than a ketogenic lifestyle. You really can't. I want to ask you, and I know you can't give medical advice. You're not giving medical advice to either me or any of the listeners. But um, I'm just going to interject this because I'm curious and mm -hmm. wondering whether I should go to a doctor. So my periods stopped when I was in my mid-40s, unsurprisingly. So now 10 to 15 years in, is it still worth exploring hormone replacement or is it too late? No, it's not worth exploring hormone replacement therapy more than five years after you stop menstruating. The reason being our brain has estrogen receptors, but with everything, use it or lose it. So if you haven't had estrogen on board for more than five years, by that time your brain will downregulate as in start to lose its estrogen receptors. So if you take estrogen now, there's all this estrogen with nothing to attach to, and it can actually have the opposite effect and increase the risk of Alzheimer's. Okay. So you only take it within five years. If you have, you know, if, if again, if there are listeners over the eight, you know, who have, it's more than five years since menopause, don't take it. Don't take it now. But if it's within five years and you've had any and you've had your ovaries out or your uterus out or you're just feeling miserable, then it's definitely worth exploring. Thank you. You're so, very welcome. We'll go back to Alzheimer's. Oh, I, <laughs> let me just wipe tears away. So I'm assuming that we can you I don't know whether you could say prevent Alzheimer's, but there's stuff that we could be doing, i.e. reducing insulin resistance, increasing ketones, being more metabolically flexible. You carry on because um, I'm sure you've got some other ideas for preventing or reducing the risk of. Amazingly, a few years ago, there was a Lancet report that said that if we remove 12 modifiable risk factors, we can prevent at least 40% of cases of dementia. Now, this is the Lancet. This is a big group of scientists who got together and said, let's see if there are any modifiable risk factors. So I'll, I'll go. I don't like to give lists because they get boring, but 
I, to memorize these 12 things, I made an acronym, which is HEADS to HEADS. So these are things to look out for in your life. And if you can remove them from your life or address them in your life, you know, we're going to slash the number of cases by 40%, which is massive, which is nearly half. Personally, I'm going to add some more, which I think could slash it up to 80, 90%. So people will remember the acronym because heads to heads. So the first one, midlife hearing loss is a big risk factor because that part of your the, the hearing part of your brain is not getting stimulated. People who don't hear well withdraw, become less, less socially engaged. And so that is a big risk factor. But if you get hearing aids or cochlear implant or whatever it is you need to do to correct your hearing, then you reduce that risk. So hearing loss, it's a simple fix. That's the H. So I, so I told you the acronym was HEADS to HEADS, didn't I? Yeah. So the, the E stands for education. We need lifelong education, so keep learning new things. Keep, you know, embracing new challenges. I tell my patients, a dance a day keeps dementia away. <laughs> Dancing is fantastic because it's physical exercise, it's social stimulation, and it's mental stimulation. That's the E, lifelong education. So would, a, you, would, yes, would, sorry, would you say dancing as in a group, going out and meeting people and dancing in a group rather than just dancing around the lounge on your own? Yes. If, if you go and have dance classes, that would be the number one because you're learning new moves, new yeah. skills. Number two would just be going and dancing in a group. That's the second best thing. And number three would be dancing at home. I mean, any dancing is good. It's just if you want the, the, the gold standard for improving brain health, it would be actually going out to learn salsa dancing or ballroom dancing or something you've not done before. Yeah, cool. Okay. A in heads to head stands for alcohol excess. Now, I'm sad to report that three, uh, three standard Australian drinks and every country has different sizes of drinks, but I think Australia and the UK are pretty close. I think yours are a bit smaller than ours. Um, whereas in Austria, it's like twice the size of ours, standard drink. But anyway, 30, basically 30 grams of alcohol a week, not a day, starts to shrink your brain. And especially if you're an APOE4 gene carrier. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, so we've, you know, we've grossly underestimated, you know, how damaging alcohol can be. Yeah. The D stands for diabetes, type 2. Yeah. Doubles your risk. S, smoking, that's an obvious one, 70% um, increased risk. T in the heads, two heads stands for traumatic brain injury. So, I mean, you know, car accidents, um, falling off bicycles, that's why wearing helmets. And this is why we're now getting all that publicity for football players, soccer players who head the ball a lot, you go through and and you will find out so many soccer players and football players are either getting CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's because head trauma, obviously. I mean, you know, who'd have thought banging your head, you know, <laughs> against someone else's head was damaging? Who'd have thought? <laughs> um, obesity, the, two, the O in two stands for obesity. Now, I don't like the word obesity because it isn't, your weight or your body mass index that matters, it's your waist circumference. Yeah. I think I mentioned this last time, but it's worth repeating. For a man, a waist circumference greater than 94 centimetres and a woman greater than 80 centimetres, 
just starts to increase your risk of chronic diseases, including Alzheimer's. So it doesn't mean at 81 centimetres you're doomed. It just means I would start to assess stress causes a lot of abdominal obesity. Um, I would look at stress levels and I would just quit all sugar as a start. Yeah. Um, then the next H stands for high blood pressure. And again, the number one way to lower blood pressure, guess what, is to lower sugar consumption and salt, but lower sugar first because it's more important. And smoking. Stop smoking. And smoking. Yes, that's right. And alcohol. <laughs> and alcohol. That's that's correct. That's all correct. Um, then there's the E. I stands for exercise. So yep. exercise deficit, sedentary lifestyles massively increase your risk. And I want to make the point that it's aerobic training. So that's running, swimming, cycling, brisk walking, plus strength training. And I think I also mentioned this when we spoke last. Make sure you don't lose your muscle mass because the more we lose muscle, the more we lose brain tissue as well. So do some form of strength training. And even balance, this is a really interesting one. They found that people with mental health disorders, people with Alzheimer's and dementias tend to have not not as good at balance. And balance uh, is sort of controlled by a little part of our brain at the back of our brain called the cerebellum. And the cerebellum also regulates our emotions and our thoughts. And they've actually started to, to find that if you get someone with schizophrenia or depression or dementia and you work on improving their balance they stand for 30 seconds on each leg with their eyes closed it's hard improving your balance can actually improve your mental health and may even improve your cognition that's early days on that one but it's worth worth mentioning because it's, it's it's an easy one to do you know just practice standing on one leg so, sure can... um, interestingly when i changed my diet six years ago i also incorporated standing on one leg when i was brushing my teeth so wow. in the beginning, I could only I could, it was a strain to do 30 seconds on each leg. But now yes. morning, left leg, evening, right leg. I don't do it with my oh. eyes closed, but maybe I should right. I shall bring in eyes closed as well now. Yes. So I that do, another level of difficulty. Yeah. So I do that every day. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I've done it for six years. So. Wow. Well, yeah. Good on you. <laughs> so, uh, and then we've got three more. Yep. Heads A, air pollution. Now, that might not be something you can do a lot about if you live in a smoggy city, but it's just worth knowing that air pollution increases the risk of dementias and Parkinson's and oh, heart disease, lung disease, asthma, all of those things. So, if you can, so, so the message there is get out into nature plant trees, you know, spend time in unpolluted environments as much as you can. D stands for depression. So depression, chronic and untreated, can also increase the risk of dementias. And S, the last one, heads to heads, social isolation. Mm. And the more we find out about, you know, the quality of our relationships, the more we realise how fundamental they are to every aspect of our health. So... Mm maintain good relationships so there you go heads two heads that's and that's just the beginning I mean they didn't talk about sleep which is another really big one you add in good quality sleep seven to nine hours a night average throughout your life and that will that is also protective for our brain so I talk about you know can it be prevented it's a bit like assembling a jigsaw puzzle with many pieces 
You know, there isn't just one factor responsible for optimal brain health, nor is there one factor responsible for brain demise, you know, short of falling off a roof and landing on your head. It's all these different aspects of our lives that contribute a piece of the puzzle. And if you notice that heads to heads, that the Lancet report, they didn't even mention sugar, which is a huge one. Yeah. Absolutely huge one. And because what I think what people sometimes don't think is that sugar is a toxin to us um, and our body has to just get rid of it as quick as it can. Well, it is sugar in excess. Can I talk about how sugar affects the brain? Yeah, because I know we need some, but probably better that we make it ourselves. You know, yes. make our own glucose to, to fuel our brain. But, yeah, go ahead. Please tell us. Okay, so table sugar known as sucrose, is made up of two smaller molecules called monosaccharides. Glucose, glucose yes. Glucose. And you know the other one? Fructose, yes. Fructose. And it's glucose, yeah, and fructose. glucose and fructose. And it's important to talk about them separately because they are metabolized very differently in our body. We'll start with fructose because that is literally toxic to our brain. Because when brain cells metabolize, in other words, break down fructose, it sets off a series of chemical reactions resulting in a drop in brain cell energy. What did we say was a hallmark of Alzheimer's? A drop in brain cell energy. And metabolizing fructose actually causes a drop in our brain cell energy. Fructose reduces mitochondrial function. It increases uric acid inside brain cells. It increases insulin resistance and it causes leptin resistance now this is important leptin again probably a lot of your listeners will know is the hormone of satiety so because fructose causes our brain to become leptin resistant we never feel full and so we keep wanting to eat fructose makes us hungry it doesn't satiate us so that just in itself is going to start that cascade of eating more never feeling satisfied craving sweets and you're on that roller coaster furthermore when lab rats are given fructose, their memory declines and they, they perform worse in maze tests than rats not given fructose. Mm. So there's immediate effects. And interestingly, this the effect of fructose is partially, but only partially, mitigated by, by giving rats omega-3 fatty acids to eat. But it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't go on a sugar binge just because you've had a big piece of salmon for dinner, okay? Mm. So... That's an example of how toxic fructose is to brain cells. It drops brain cell energy. It leads to the buildup of toxic metabolites like uric acid. It leads to insulin resistance. It leads to leptin resistance, all of which are going to take you down that metabolic disease pathway. Yeah. So you, you're mentioning um, table sugar being glucose and fructose. but Yes. Um, fruit is just fructose, isn't it? So if you're eating a lot of fruit, is that having the same effect? It's having a different... Now, if you gorge on fruit, not a good idea. If you drink fruit juice, terrible idea. If you eat dried fruit, bad idea. I tell people fruit juice um, and soft drinks and any sugary drinks are like machine gun fire, bullets to our brain. Okay, mm. drinking sugar is the worst way we can consume it. Eating whole fruits in small amounts are fine because the fiber and water significantly reduce the amount of fructose we absorb. 
So we actually, when we're eating whole fruit, you don't peel it, you don't remove anything, you don't remove the water, you don't remove the fiber, you just eat the whole fruit. We only absorb a small amount of fructose. We don't absorb a lot of it. Plus, the vitamin C in fruit mitigates the harmful effect of the fructose. So when nature invented a poison, it actually packaged it with its antidote, mm. the fiber, the water, the vitamin C. Yeah. Now, if you if you eat five bananas a day, well, you know, anything to excess is going to be a bad idea. But if you just eat, you know, a few berries for dessert, you know, a handful of berries for dessert, you know, a kiwi fruit, to kiwi fruits also high vitamin C, low glycemic index. So, and and, and not so high in fructose. So, citrus fruits they're pretty good as well. So yes, I, as long as you're not eating other junk and you don't have to be in strict ketosis, then some fruit isn't going to do you any harm. Okay. Okay. So it is, again, it's individual. But now here's the really, really strong, this blew my mind and it's only just been very recently um, discovered. Glucose, everyone knows, stimulates insulin release from the pancreas and in excess leads to insulin resistance, which leads to type 2 diabetes, abdominal obesity, heart disease, and most of the chronic diseases of modern life. I think everybody knows that. But here's the freaky thing. Excess glucose can be converted to fructose. And when I say excess glucose, that would apply to anyone eating a standard Western diet. Now, the enzyme needed, you need an enzyme to convert glucose to fructose. That enzyme is enhanced in the presence of salt or alcohol. And that's why eating like French fries, we call them chips, crisps, which is your starch, your glucose. Like, I don't need to remind people that glucose is found in all your starchy vegetables, your potatoes, your rice, your pasta, uh, your grains. So all of these things break down into glucose. If you eat glucose and you add salt, that is a quick, surefire way of converting that glucose into fructose with all the toxic effects of fructose. Wow. I didn't know that. I hadn't heard that before. No. Um, you might want to look up the uh, the research done by Rick Johnson. His studies on this are fantastic. He goes into all the mechanisms. It's It's really fascinating. Okay. So if you do have to eat carbs, at least don't add salt and don't drink alcohol. And also dehydration also facilitates that conversion of glucose to fructose um, and conditions of low oxygen. So, um, you know, hypoxic conditions. You know, exercising and... Yeah. So if you consume carbs in the form of leafy green vegetables and most other above ground vegetables, you'll be fine. The key word is excess which unfortunately is most people today. I mean, if you eat any processed foods, you're going to be eating carbs in excess. Yeah. So you've written a book about Alzheimer's. Tell us a little bit about that and um, and the neuro-ketotherapeutics. Okay, the book is called Can Adventure Prevent Dementia? A Guide to Outwitting Alzheimer's. Spoiler alert, adventure can prevent dementia, certainly to a large degree. And one of the things I focus on in the book is the role of neuroketotherapeutics, NKT. Now, this is a, a just a type of ketogenic therapy. It's just the ketogenic diet. 
used to treat a wide range of neurological disorders, including epilepsy, which is where the ketogenic diet really started. I mean, it is, this is not news. It's been known to treat epilepsy, oh, decades, decades and decades. Nearly 100 years, I would say. Yeah, I think it's nearly 100 years. Fasting, I mean, fasting will cure epilepsy, but you can't fast forever. And so a doctor, I believe he was at Johns Hopkins in the United States, created the ketogenic diet because it was a fasting mimicking diet. And lo and behold, still today, um, it, it is really effective at, at curing, curing a lot of epilepsies. Yeah. But unfortunately, doctors don't offer it unless medications fail. And even then, a lot of neurologists don't know about it, which mm. is tragic. So, in, so NKT, it started with epilepsy, but now it's being trialled in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, migraines, head trauma, brain tumours, even ADHD. It has helped all of these conditions. And I, I think you've discussed the work of the wonderful psychiatrists, Dr. Georgia Ede and Christopher Palmer. Have you had him or, or talked about him? No, they, not, I, I met Georgia Ede um, a couple of weeks ago and hopefully she's going to come on at some point, but you know fantastic she's a busy lady but who knows if we yes. can to come but she said she yes. would great um dr christopher palmer he's brilliant as well he's another psychiatrist who has also used um ketogenic therapies in in his practice and they have shown fantastic results in depression anxiety bipolar disorder schizophrenia so basically um i just think not offering somebody with alzheimer's dementia, Parkinson's, a ketogenic diet as a potential therapy is negligent. Would you include and in that MS? I would certainly try it, yes. Um, I would certainly give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'd give it a shot. My, I don't have a lot of experience in MS, so I'd have to look more closely if there has been any trials or any literature on the, on the topic. Yeah. So, so I would encourage if anyone has MS, look it up. Just see if anyone's tried the ketogenic diet in MS. So would you say if you're if you're wanting to treat dementia, Alzheimer's, when you say NKT, would, would that be a, a very high fat ketogenic diet? Not necessarily, no. Okay. So it, what does the neuroketotherapy oh, how do you how do you define that? It just indicates ketogenic diet used for neurological disorders. It's no different to any other ketogenic diet. In fact, you could go to oh, another brilliant um, doctor, Matthew Phillips yeah. in New Zealand. He's actually done, I'll talk about it in a minute, he's actually done a trial of Alzheimer's patients in hospital. He put them first on a ketogenic diet, I think it was 12 weeks, and another group, the control group on the, you know, New Zealand recommended low-fat, healthy diet. Yeah. <laughs> and then he had a washout period where they just went back to normal and then he switched them over. So the ketogenic group got the low-fat New Zealand diet and the low-fat group got the ketogenic diet. And in both cases, now remember these were Alzheimer's patients, so they were, they weren't, you know, they needed the help of a carer, you know, to organise their food. So he had to make it pretty simple, and they like sweet food. So he even included quite a, you know, a, 
fair amount of, um, monk, you know, sweeteners just to make sure that they would comply. And even in such a short space of time, the ketogenic diet substantially improved daily functioning and quality of life in those New Zealand hospital clinic Alzheimer's patients. And the reason I'm mentioning all of this now, because you said, does it, what kind of ketogenic diet it ha- does it have to be? You can download the diet he gave his patients from his website. Right. It's called Metabolic Strategy Plan. And so you can, you can conduct that trial for yourself. And I do so highly recommend it. You know, I, I recommend it to everyone that has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's because it's really doable, really doable. So, and, yeah. Sorry, go on. You go on. I was going to ask, so if somebody already has dementia and maybe they're in a place where they're at the point where they, they can't care for themselves, they can't cook, they need a carer, but they might be used to their way of eating, how easy is it? for somebody to make those food changes and get somebody to eat differently? I think it depends a lot on the motivation of the caregiver, of the care partner, whoever's looking after them. With my dad, now, unfortunately, I didn't know about the ketogenic diet in Alzheimer's when he was alive. I did know the toxic effects of sugar. So we were eating low carb, but he wasn't in ketosis, which really... If you have Alzheimer's, you would really want to be in ketosis at least 0.5 millimolar, and you you test that on a regular basis. Um, oh, sorry, I've forgotten where we were going with that. Oh, okay. yeah, how how easy, how easy would it be to implement? Now, Dad was terrific because he accepted I did the cooking, he would do the eating. So if he had somebody that was you know, you know, really gung-ho like me and he was, you know, he could still feed himself and he could still, yeah, he, you know, he to the very end because I was so diligent and we did exercise and we were socially active and, you know, we did volunteer work and we really did try and engage him in as many ways as possible, my partner and I. So he was still cognizant of who we were and he was still pretty functional even 10 years on. And because I was doing all the cooking and the shopping and I'd served up the food and I knew what, you know, I'd make it palatable. So if you've got somebody who's really, really keen to help and supportive, then it's doable. But if you don't have someone supporting that person or if they're really, really set in their ways and and refuse to eat anything different, then it's going to be really hard. And that's the biggest argument for start the sooner as soon as you possibly can while the person is still able to make changes and still understands why these changes could be so helpful yeah so my mum's friend um is starting down that route of losing cognitive function and she she knows it she knows where she is yes but she won't she won't consider changing her diet and she eats a mostly vegetarian diet and Mm -hmm. quite I would say probably quite high carb diet and she's not interested whatsoever in making a change. And it's so sad because I know that she could make a difference and she's not interested in any way, shape or form, but I guess you can only lead people to knowledge and, you know, lead a horse to knowledge, but you can't make them think. So, Mm. yeah. Do you know why she 
because I've got my own theories based on feedback I get from people. Why do you think she's just not interested in changing? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I think partly she doesn't like to be told what to do. Yes. Um, partly I think it would be encouraging her to drop the grains and the things that she's used to. She's 82 years old and she's probably thinking, why bother at this point? Yeah, I think that's a big factor. Yeah. And she doesn't like meat particularly. She doesn't want to eat meat. I think she has some fish. Um, mm -hmm. Well, she does eat fish. But, yeah, it's very sad. It is. I think what my experience, I think people get to a point where, well, there's a couple of things. Number one, they, in their heart of hearts, they actually don't believe that it's going to make that much difference. I yeah. don't think, even when, when it's in front of them, that, that this kind of diet will improve your function. They go, oh, will it really? I, mm -hmm. I don't think it will. So I think there's partly that. There's also, you're taking away all the things that bring me pleasure. Yeah. I've only got a few years left. I want to have pleasure. Yeah. So I think is the fear that you're taking away all these things and that, that I really enjoy. And, you know, when I started to swap out, like Dad used to just guzzle soft drinks. It was like not on my watch. But I had to slowly wean him off soft drinks, like, you know, dilute them with uh, natural mineral, sparkling mineral water so that they were weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker until he was just drinking the sparkling mineral water. Um, but I had my friend's parents saying to me, oh, you're being really mean. Just let your dad enjoy, you know. Let him have his biscuits and his – he used to, to eat, I don't know if you've got scotch finger biscuits dipped into his morning coffee for breakfast. That was his breakfast for years, biscuits, like um, shortbread biscuits. Shortbread, yeah. Out of a packet, out of a packet, not homemade, shortbread biscuits dipped in coffee. That was breakfast. I just felt, this is just my personal opinion, if I'm now looking after him, it would be elder abuse to allow that to continue. Yeah. Like I, Now, I didn't fight him. I just said to him, hey, how about you try? And, and again, that was that was a slow transition as well. Let's try something else for breakfast. Let's let's try something else as well. You know, let's you know, I he what he did want to improve his memory. That was that was the good thing, and he was seventy in his seventies. So not so you know so he potentially had knew he had possibly ten years more to live. So he was he was like oh, just to keep you quiet. Okay, I won't have the biscuits. You know, I'll have an egg. And he did like eggs. So as long as I cooked the eggs, he was fine. So all I'm saying is, yeah, other people were, they were, don't think I didn't get criticism for robbing my father of some of his pleasures, but I didn't. I made sure that I did make him keto ice cream. I, you know, I used the monk fruit. I did, you know, we got into the dark chocolate because, you know, it has very little sugar and it was chocolate, you know. So, you just got to do the best you can and balance that with not reducing the person's quality of life. Yeah. And I guess <clears throat> at this point it would be okay to wean yourself down, you know, make a transition, yes. even if it takes 
a few months to transition away. So maybe going from two shortbread biscuits to one shortbread, an egg and then one shortbread biscuit and then cutting that down a bit like you yes. did with the um, soft drinks. So you yes. wean people off. Yeah. So is there a place for exogenous ketones? Look, I think there is potential and I did give him and me MCT oil. I just I just didn't realise sort of the connection with the ketogenic diet necessarily, but, yeah, we, we had coconut oil and MCT oil. I know that's not exactly exogenous ketones. And the short answer is I'm not sure because there have been studies where exogenous ketones have been given on top of an ordinary diet and they haven't really shown any improvement. Mm. And I think part of the reason, I think it's not just that ketones are in themselves neuroprotective. It's, you know, you know, ketones reduce inflammation, they reduce oxidative stress, they even reduce those amyloid levels in the brain and they provide a fuel source um, for the brain that's, that's running out of glute, that, you know, that can't use glucose. But I think it's also the low-carb state in and of itself that that triggers a whole cascade of other protective and brain-healthy reactions. Mm. So it's not just the ketones. It's also the fact that you're in a low-carbohydrate state. And that's also why I strongly recommend fasting. And, you know, again, it's really hard with elderly people because often they're losing weight and not eating enough as it is. Um. But I still, you know, Dad and I would fast. He would fast for at least 12 hours, but I would recommend getting into the habit of 14, 16 hours overnight because that mm-hmm. puts you into ketosis when you wake up, what well, does some people. Um, but I think the other thing too is that the human body, it's an unnatural state to have high glucose or to have high glucose levels and high ketone levels in the blood. That is just an abnormal, it's not a, normal physiological state and I just wonder what your body and brain are thinking when it's like hang on I shouldn't have ketones and glucose in my blood together at the same time because they're kind of mutually exclusive yeah I hadn't thought of that but it I totally get that it makes absolute sense so it's the balance of glucose insulin everything balanced out in the body that's going to make the difference yeah, I, I believe so. Now, it might be a good supplement in someone who's trying, you know, who's really doing their best but just not quite getting into ketosis. Maybe in that person you just add some some exogenous ketones. That might help. Mm. Yeah. So why – no, I've, I've got my personal opinion, but I'm going to keep quiet. Um, why do you think the medical profession are not getting on board with dietary changes and – low carb well we know for everything but particularly for alzheimer's the mind boggles really i think lack of education and lack of time are probably two big barriers doctors are not taught to prescribe food or exercise as medicine it's not part of the culture doctors are only taught to prescribe drug surgery or radiation um I always think of you, you've heard of Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine. He taught that healing arises from the art of true living and the art of fine medicine combined. 
Unfortunately, medical schools have forgotten to convey the most important half of the equation, the art of true living. Mm. Um, and I, quite frankly, I'm, I'm aghast that ketogenic diets are not widely discussed in the medical community by everyone, endocrinologists for type 2 diabetes, um, neurologists for neurological conditions, cardiologists for heart conditions, rheumatologists for arthritic conditions, it should all be offered. You don't have to force people to just just give it to them as an option. I've just attended a three, this was only last week, a three-day Alzheimer's disease research forum in Australia where the most brilliant scientific minds were presenting the latest cutting-edge research on Alzheimer's and there was not a single mention of the ketogenic diet or MCT or even just quitting sugar. Mm. I So... I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe in conspiracy theories. You know that you know because big pharma has nothing to gain from people going on ketogenic diets, and they might lose their profits if people started getting healthy. I, th- I think it's a whole mix of things that people are really scared to change, reluctant to change, find it hard to change how they've practiced things, scared of getting it wrong, scared of looking stupid, probably egos. You know, if you've been practicing or in in a certain way for so long and you're a professor and now you suddenly have to say, you know what, I've been missing a huge piece of the puzzle, it's a bit embarrassing. Yeah. Though it shouldn't be. I mean, people should accept science is constantly adding to our knowledge and I, I'm constantly apologising to patients. Hey, 20 years ago I was promoting a low-fat, high-carb diet because that's what I was taught was the healthy way to go. Now I'm constantly apologising. I'm really sorry on behalf of my whole profession, that we got it so wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, even me as a mum bringing up my boys, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. And I, I often say to them, I just say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I got it wrong. In in various guises, not just food, but yeah. all sorts of things. It's like, ah, well, and I, I keep telling myself, you know, you did the best you could with the knowledge Absolutely. you've had. Absolutely. But I, it, you know, I feel differently now, and I try, and I'm still kind to myself. But I just think oh, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known. But yeah. you, you know, you need to know what you know. And I think you only take it on board at the right time. You know, when it appears in your life at the right time. That's right. So, um, I mean, sure, I'd heard of the Atkins diet, but like all my peers, I thought, oh. That's the quickest way to a heart attack. Not recommending that. Yeah. I didn't even do low fat particularly, but I still believed that low fat was the way to go. I just thought I'm making myself really sick by eating lots of high fat stuff. But there you go. I was doing something right there. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, so are there specific foods that are particularly important when it comes to brain health? I prefer to get people to get rid of the junk first and then the good foods will naturally come in. So quit all liquid forms of sugar, quit breakfast cereals, quit refined starches, quit seed oils, quit ultra-processed food. Salt is only a problem if you have a high-carb diet. Add in real whole foods. But if you really, really want a few specific foods, I have made up my own acronym. Okay. Brain foods. So B stands for 
broccoli and berries. Berries, you know, you know, notwithstanding that, as we said, you know, fruits do contain some sugar, but if they're whole fruits, they're fine. Berries really have such a low glycemic index. They're not going to do any harm. And, and blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, they have all been found to have such a high concentration of phytonutrients. Um, so, you know, broccoli and berries are good for your brain. Yeah. Uh, um, Rucola, which stands for which means, which is um, a, a leafy green vegetable, rocket. We call rocket. it rocket. Yeah, we call, call it rocket. Yeah. Yeah, rucola. So leaf, dark leafy greens are fantastic. A, avocado, because it represents all those healthy fats. I stands for iodine. Now, iodine is an essential nutrient that should be in the soil, but, you know, we've leached our soil, so that's seafood and seaweed. Iodine is really important for your thyroid to function properly, so make sure you do get iodine. So I get iodized salt. N stands for nuts with nothing added. So all your 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 most of your nuts are just fantastic, but don't have them dry roasted or anything like that. Because if you buy them roasted, guaranteed you'll have vegetable oils. Yeah. And the roasting does reduce their nutritional quality. F fermented foods. Now you can still stay in ketosis even with all your fermented foods, and that they are really good for our gut. O in foods, olive oil. The second O onions well that's only because i couldn't think of anything else really you know how to <laughs> i like okra that. okra is another vegetable um onions are actually once i quit sugar onions are really sweet they really add sweetness it's amazing how many vegetables suddenly start to taste sweet um d stands for d vitamins um your mushrooms um oily fish but mainly sun make sure you get adequate sun exposure and i say minimum 10 to 15 minutes a day in the middle of the day without sunscreen. Uh, in the UK, you might need a little bit more time because you don't get quite as much sun as we do. No. And the S in brain foods stands for salmon um, and your oily fish. Yeah, well, the smash fish. Smash, that's right, smash. Salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardine, sardine and herrings. Herring, that's right. That's right. Mm. Um, there you go, full of acronyms today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about supplements? Any particular supplements? Maybe vitamin D three if you're in winter, yes. or in a high sun place. Definitely vitamin D, and it's you're not going to overdose. I mean, if you just take a little pill a day, um, I think a thousand international units is not very much so harmless make sure you have a with a with a meal particularly fatty because it's a fat soluble vitamin so you need your fats to absorb it um b12 if you are vegan absolutely definitely because b12 is only found in animal foods your organ meats and your eggs and meats in general and over the age of 50 i recommend most people consider you know start testing your B12 levels and make sure you stay in the high, in, in the upper range of normal because over the age of 50, we reduce the production of an enzyme called intrinsic factor in our stomach, which enables us to absorb B12. So as we age, we don't absorb as much B12. So mm. that's why I myself just take a, a tablet under the tongue. Oh, I don't remember, once a week. And we store it for a long time. And I eat so many other things that contain it. I'm probably fine. 
Um, but as I said, because we don't absorb as much as we used to, that's why I take my little pill um, and I take it under the tongue because if you if you swallow, even though they say that the tablets can be still absorbed, they don't need the intrinsic factor, they are designed that you can dissolve them under your tongue and that way you're guaranteed to get more of it. Is there a specific type? I mean, would you say it needs to be for most people, for lots of people, methylated? Is there a special thing to look out for when it comes to B12? Oh, I'm not sure. I haven't dug deep enough into that. I just take a regular B12, just no particular brand or type. Okay. With magnesium, that has been found, especially in women, to boost cognition. Now, with magnesium, I do recommend a particular one if you can get hold of it, very hard in Australia, magnesium l 308 Now, any magnesium is good, but the 308 is particularly good for the brain. Yeah. If you're not getting um, oily fish, seaweeds, um, your omega-3 nuts in your diet, then, then I would recommend an omega-3 supplement. Yeah. Vitamin C to mitigate some of the negative effects of fructose. I mean, you're not going to do yourself any harm taking vitamin C. And curcumin. That's the active ingredient in turmeric. Now, with curcumin, there you have to make sure it's a supplement that has been specifically formulated to increase its bioavailability. In Australia, I take, I'm not affiliated with anyone. Anything I recommend is something I take because I've done my homework and I believe that's the best one I can find. Um, it's called Theracumin. Um, it's it's made into particularly fine nanoparticles because the bigger particles we don't absorb. Because they did studies on people, they gave them the ordinary curcumin and they found, oh, they're not absorbing it. So they had to make the particles finer in order for us to absorb it. Mm, yeah. And I myself love MCT oil, two tablespoons a day. Work up to two tablespoons a day. Don't just start on start on a, a teaspoon a day because it can give you an ups- some people an upset stomach and never heat it. I just love drizzling MCT oil because it tastes like coconut over scrambled eggs. Just taste delicious. Stir-fried mushrooms, salads. I just love the taste of it. And yeah. it's just a bonus that I get the brain benefits. Yeah. Right. So if if people are worried about uh, declining memory or they're feeling brain sluggish, not as sharp as they used to be, where do they start? I'm going to be facetious and say, read my book. <laughs> uh, and, and that's because it really does take you through from woe to go. Yeah. And, and it's got so many stories of how I looked after dad and what I did right and what I did wrong. So that that is a really good start. I would, you can also go to my website, adventurepreventsdementia.com, where I have a lot of free information. Um, and yes, go to the Alzheimer's Association in your country for some basic information. But let me just warn you, you're not going to get anything on a keto diet. You, you will get very good information on how to diagnose and, you know, what sort of tests you might need to have and really basic advice on improving your memory, but nothing really specific because they're just not up yet on keto and quitting sugar. Yeah. 
But then, okay, so so you've done the sort of basic reading. I'd start by just ruling out easy reversible conditions like hearing loss. Okay, just get your hearing checked because that could be making you feel that your brain's not working properly. Go to the dentist, have you, your gums checked because gum disease, the bacteria causing gum disease called Porphyromonas gingivalis can travel to the brain and damage areas involved in memory and learning. And they've actually found um, toxins produced by that bacteria in high numbers in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. So it can be a contributing factor. Another one is, are you on medications, um, particularly medications known as anticholinergics? They actually can reduce focus and concentration and memory. So sometimes it's just a, as we get older, we are less able to metabolize our medication. So you need to reduce the dose for elderly people. Um, and also the blood-brain barrier, which is um, sort of a, a, a firm lining of cells between our blood and our brain to stop toxins getting in, that gets a bit, the fence starts to weaken, the barrier starts to weaken, and so more drugs can get into the brain. So just go to your doctor and say, are any of my medications anticholinergics? Could they be affecting my brain? And the ones to particularly look out for are antihistamines, antidepressants, cough medications, anti-incontinence drugs. Now, do not... Do not ever abruptly stop a medication no. because that is that's just gonna that can have dire consequences. Go to your doctor and discuss because maybe your particular antidepressant doesn't have anticholinergic effects. Not all of them do. Mm. Yeah, yeah, always. Um, yeah, then I'd I'd go and make sure um, you're not drinking too much alcohol. Again, we as I said, three drinks a week starts to shrink our brain. Ask your doctor to test you for an underactive thyroid, B12 deficiency, iron deficiency, folate deficiency, vitamin D deficiency, so all those things. Yeah. Um, are you a snorer? Get a sleep study if you snore because you might have obstructive sleep apnea. And I have had patients cured, in inverted commas, um, of Alzheimer's who actually didn't have Alzheimer's, they had obstructive sleep apnea and a CPAP machine cured them. So that's a big one. Um, and then I would do an audit of, oh, the other one to look out for is depression. Sometimes in an older person, they have depression, but in an older person, it presents like dementia. They're, they're more confused and they don't have energy and they're apathetic and their memories just, weaker and that could actually be depression mm. rather than so it's another one to really look out for and also just just check if you haven't had a recent really high stressful situation in your life a major change a moving house loss of a loved one loss of a job those things sort of border on stress depression they can also look like declining brain function sometimes yeah. and then Everything else we've talked about, you know, just ask yourself, you know, am I having too much sugar? Am I eating ultra-processed food? Am I, you know, increasing my carbs and this is not agreeing with me? Have I stopped exercising? Have I allowed myself to, um, you know, stop strength training and I'm losing muscle mass? And most, most, most importantly, do not withdraw from family and friends because they are the your best ally in keeping your brain healthy. Yeah. And I think part of that 
uh, as well as all the social connections which we know are so important for our health in you know it's important for heart everything is yes. you've got the social connections you're actually using your brain because you're having to talk you're having to listen you're looking all these things where you're using your brain actually That's right. help to keep it functioning yes interacting with people meeting new people just having a conversation with someone and you're really you exercising your brain in a big way you're thinking should i say that oh no i better not say that that might have, you know you don't realize just how much of your brain you're engaging yeah so helena tell people about the book and is there anything else that because we've done a really deep dive today and it's been fabulous yes um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel would be important to mention? I think just to be aware that we have a really ageist society and this negative outlook actually accelerates brain shrinkage. Um, the, the hippocampus, that's an area of our brain that is really central to memory and learning, it shrinks three times faster in people who complain about getting old compared to people who have an optimistic outlook. So I really tell people, you know, try and focus on what we gain, not lose as we age. You know, we gain freedom. We gain more time to travel. We've got less concern for what other people think of us. Think of all the good things and have the motto, grow bolder, not older. Continue mm. to set meaningful goals. It doesn't matter what it is as long as it brings you joy and fulfilment and Honestly, if you give your brain a reason to stay sharp, it will. Yeah. And volunteer work. Volunteer work is a huge one. It because you're still you're engaging socially, you feel that you're still making a positive difference to others, and that is so vitally important. And the book has everything we've talked about today, plus a whole lot more. It's it's I talk about it as this book is like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. I talk about all the different pieces of the puzzle of brain health yeah and that's going to be suitable for anybody because as you said alzheimer's starts 20 to 30 years before so even people in their 20s and 30s should be getting this book and reading it um because start now don't wait until you're 70 and you've lost 10 percent of your brain function that's right and look Anything that's good for the brain is also good for the gut, is good for the heart, is good for the immune system. So really, it's not just a book about brain health. It's a book about health in general and living a more fulfilling life because the great news is everything we do to improve our brain health, heart health, gut health actually leads to a more joyful and fulfilling life. Yeah. Fabulous. So tell people how they can contact you. Just the best place is my website because then that will lead you to whatever you want to know. So drhelenapopovic.com or a second website, adventurepreventsdementia.com and a third website, winningatslimming.com, depending on what you want. <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, and Google the book. Uh, you can obviously buy it from my website and you can buy it from Amazon. Have you got, now we always ask for three top tips, but I feel like you've given us a hundred top tips today. <laughs> Have you got maybe three top tips that you would pick out for somebody just wanting to take the, the three main things away? Okay. One, adventure can prevent dementia. 
Yeah. Give your brain a reason to stay sharp and it will. So that means continue to set meaningful goals. Mm-hmm. Two, think I'm growing bolder, not older. Yeah. So, you, so you've got this optimistic, energized view of aging. And education is more powerful than medication, literally. Keep learning. Keep doing everything you can that stimulates your brain and brings you joy. Yeah. And we spoke about education, not medication, in the last, yes. in the last episode. Fabulous. And it applies, you know, even more profoundly to our brain. And look, because the medical profession is so slow at taking up change, we have to do it. We just have to take responsibility for our own health and spread it to our doctors. I mean, I'm a doctor too, but, <laughs> um, but you know, spread it to other doctors as well. Yeah. Fabulous. Thank you so much. It's a fabulous episode. I know it's a long one, folks, but it's really, really good. My absolute pleasure. I just think we've got to get this message out. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle FabulouslyKeto1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.